I'm glad you're here to join us for the first session in our new series called Outsiders. In this series, we want to look at how the church, how individual Christians can thrive in a secular world. Well, to set the stage in this first lesson, I'd like to take you back in time. Take you back to the time of King David over Israel. He ruled more than 900 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And when he was ruling, Israel saw its golden age. King David and the army of Israel were able to push back their enemies on all sides. They were able to occupy the land that God had given them in peace. And there's an interesting passage of scripture that's recorded from this time. The situation is this, David is calling on the 12 tribes of Israel, each to bring some fighting men so that he can go up against the enemies of Israel. And the passage in the book called First Chronicles in the Old Testament starts to list from each tribe how many soldiers came. One of the tribes of Israel is named after one of the 12 sons of Israel, the patriarch. His name was Issachar. And so his descendants became the tribe of Issachar. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read this interesting little verse. It said, the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It goes on to say how many soldiers they called up. But I thought, what an interesting description. The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do what the passage is talking about. They understood world events. They understood the politics, the happenings of the time, and they could, they could see the course forward for the nation of Israel. And I thought, what an appropriate title for our first lesson is Understanding the Times in Which We Find Ourselves. So I'd like to start out by diving in and looking at our current situation in the world, but more particularly in America. Let's see what the current situation is toward Christians in our country. This is an interesting quote from Russell Moore. Dr. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a theologian, he's an ethicist, and he writes on current events. He makes an interesting observation from this year. He said, if we ever were a moral majority, if Christians ever were, in his opinion, a force for morality, a majority, if you will, in our country, we are no longer. As the secularizing and sexualizing revolutions were on, it is no longer possible to pretend that we represent the real America. A majority of God-loving, hard-working, salt-of-the-earth cultural conservatives like us. Accordingly, we will need to engage the culture less like the chaplains of some idyllic Mayberry, meaning less like uh, people in a very friendly culture in which we are the majority of, of people think like us, and really more like the apostles in the book of Acts, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. We will be speaking not primarily to baptize pagans on somebody's church roll, but to those who are hearing something new maybe for the first time. We will hardly be normal, but then, Russell Moore states, we should never have tried to be. What he's saying is, is that the time has come in America when Christian worldview, a Christian thoughts on what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, is not a majority. 
Dr. Peter Lillebeck, who is the president of Westminster Theological Society, has observed something very similar. Many commentators talk about America going from a, a Christian era, if you will, to a post-Christian era, meaning people have grown up, if you will, and become more rational or scientific and are beginning to leave Christianity behind. But Dr. Lillebeck makes this observation. He says, we have moved from a post-Christian era to an actively anti-Christian era. Even our top political leaders are defining the First Amendment. Let me remind you of the First Amendment. That's the, the state will establish no religions and that we have the freedom to practice our religion. We have freedom of speech and of the press and freedom of assembly. In other words, freedom of religious expression, freedom of speech. Even our top leaders, he says, are understanding the First Amendment as anyone who holds traditional Orthodox Christian views as being guilty of hate speech. You see that in the news, you see it creeping up in our society is that people who hold traditional biblical values on moral issues, instead of being protected by the First Amendment, right to practice and express our religion, instead are beginning to be labeled as people who are talking hatefully, hate speech. Dr. Littlebeck says that we should expect that hostility and even persecution is over the next hill. Well, that sounds like a pretty dark view of the situation in America. Let me show you some interesting research. This is from last year. This chart, pretty easy to read. Basically, it asks this simple question, a religious news survey, asks this question, in America today, this is mid uh, 2015, Discrimination against Christians has become as big a problem as discrimination against other groups. So what this is asking is, in the public imagination, is discrimination against Christians reach the level of discrimination against, now fill in different groups who have uh, either been discriminated against or feel they have been discriminated against, such as blacks or Hispanics or gays or transgender, all the different groups who speak into our culture, they said, do you think Christians have become, discrimination against Christians has become as big a problem? Well, all Americans, this is an interesting statistic, all Americans, regardless of where they stand on religion, look at that, 49% said yes, they agree, 47% no. So the country's pretty evenly split, but I think it's interesting that it's evenly split, that a few more think that discrimination against Christians is a reality. White evangelical Protestants, you'll see even more. Evangelicals meaning typically defined, whether rightly or wrongly, but evangelicals typically defined as people whose faith and whose worldview more informs their life and their practice. And as you would expect, you see 70% feel that discrimination against Christians has become as big as any other group. This statistic, the next category, surprised me a little bit. These are non-white Protestants. So this would be Hispanics, blacks, uh, Asians, uh, anything that's non-Caucasian. But look at that number. 55% of that group believe so, that discrimination against Christians, which tells us this is discrimination. In my mind, what this tells me is they're across racial and ethnic boundaries, Christians are feeling more hostility, more persecution. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a matter of origin. It's a matter of beliefs. 
Catholics split pretty much down the middle. White mainline Protestant would be non-evangelical. And those would be the more traditional mainline denominations. You'll see that they probably flip a little bit fewer of them think discrimination. And look at this, unaffiliated. These are people who have no religious affiliation. And as you might expect, only 34% say yes, discrimination against Christians is a big problem. Whereas about 60 say no. I think it's significant that even a third of unaffiliated people believe that there is hostility or discrimination against Christians in America. Well, let's talk about how we got there. We got there over a period of time. And as the culture moved more toward a post-Christian than an anti-Christian and more of a divide with Christian beliefs and ideals, the church reacted to that, as it has throughout history. The culture pushes, sometimes the church pushes back, sometimes the church moves. The church through this period did an interesting thing. It basically divided, if you will. And Dr. Tim Keller does a very nice job of explaining this divide. He starts first, and he says there's a group of churches which, for the sake of convenience, we'll call liberal. And those churches basically reacted to this movement in this way. They appealed to a section of modern culture which has three idols. In other words, they engage the culture and the gods of the culture. And those are, number one, a personal choice and freedom. In other words, the secular culture, I think it's very confused and very incoherent about what freedom is, but it holds as one of its gods the idea of everybody having a personal choice, even your choice of truth. Absolute tolerance and the rejection of any exclusive truth and the rejection of personal responsibility. In other words, there's no such thing as sin in a Christian sense. And thirdly, professional expertise and status. Those churches, in order to attract this culture and avoid conflict with this culture, those churches basically have adapted. They have accepted modern sexual ethics that begin to basically leave the biblical idea of sexual ethics and blend that or accept the culture's idea of sexual ethics. They don't do church discipline. They don't preach Christ as the only way to salvation. Their ministry is supportive and therapeutic. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And no one is ever warned of the dangers of God's judgment. In other words, there's not conflict with this culture. So the church is run by experts, lady are not empowered to minister. In general, the popular opinions of modern culture were adopted and promoted. Those churches don't preach judgment, accountability, or moral virtue, or there would be conflict. So one of the ways that Christians, churches, have dealt with this uh, push from the culture has been to adopt the norms of the culture. Another way, as the church basically divided over this, the conservative churches, to put that label on it, went the other direction and withdrew in a sense. They idolized uh, an idealized past, in other words, always thinking, wow, things are getting worse and it was so much better in the past. The nuclear family, trying to hold together stability in a culture that's pressing on them. One's own race and traditional culture and authority. Now, while liberal culture is relativistic, conservative culture is moralistic and makes an idol out of goodness and respectability. So the church retreated and rebelled against the morality of the culture. Instead of embracing it, like the liberal churches, conservative churches rebelled against it and held more tightly to a strict moral code. He said, again, if these churches preached about racism and justice for the poor, challenged people to embrace those who were unrespectable or marginalized, then there would be conflict 
And so the church basically moved from that pressure in two directions. And I think that's a fairly accurate statement of where the church has moved over the past few decades. Let me show you a couple of studies that really highlight this. The first was done in 2005. A professor at Notre Dame named Christian Smith and some of his colleagues began at first, uh, the results are chronicled in a book called Soul Searching, and it's basically a survey of Christian teens. And what he wanted to know was, what do Christian teenagers actually believe? They have the label Christian, but what do they believe? How do they see the world? And then a follow-up book dealt with young adults, that 18 to 24-year-old range. His findings were very interesting, and so he basically surveyed their views. And so now, remember, this is the church that's divided. This is in the midst of... uh, a secular world that's pressing, where Christians are becoming in a moral minority, if you will. And here are the things that he found that they believed. He called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's a term that's not very helpful for us, but I want to break it down just a little bit. First, they basically believe, these are Christian teens, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. This is deism. In other words, you don't have a personal God. You don't have a God who is in the midst of our lives and relational. You have a God who is powerful and basically created things. Kind of a deistic view, not necessarily a biblical view of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus Christ, his son. Second thing they believed is that God wants people to be good or nice to each other. Uh, as the Bible teaches, is basically be nice to people. And and other religions teach the same thing. This is called moralism, moralistic. In other words, be a good person, treat other people nicely. And so they had reduced basically Christianity into a God who created and ordered things and who would like for us to be nice to other people. So a moralistic view of the world. Third, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And you see a very materialistic view here. In other words, what God wants for you and what you should want for you is basically be happy and feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. The God of Christian teens who were surveyed in this 2005 survey was a therapeutic God. It's like, think of therapeutic in this way. If you have a cold or you have a cough and you realize, wow, I think I need help with this, and so you would make an appointment, you would go to the doctor. Doctor would see you, maybe the doctor gives you some antibiotics and you go home and a few days later you feel better. You don't talk to your doctor when you're feeling good. You don't go to dinner typically with your doctor. You call your doctor when you have a problem and you expect your doctor to fix that problem. Well, that's a therapeutic way of looking at God, and that is we don't need to talk, don't need your help until I do, and then, well, now you're the God that, uh, you know, heals my marriage and uh, takes care of my job and works on my finances and uh, makes my teeth white and my children to have higher than average ACT scores. In other words, wherever we think we have a need, we go to God with that therapeutic approach, and then finally, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, that's kind of an incoherent statement because who knows what a good person is, but this was the general idea is that be nice to people, 
go talk to God when you need him and he just loves you enough that he'll take care of your problems and then just being good will go to heaven when we die. This is what Christian teens in America thought. This was their view of Christianity called moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, let's fast forward to today and let's take those teens and let's let them grow up. There have been many surveys, one recently by Ligonier that was called a theological survey that talked about adult Christians in America and what was their view about certain key things. For example, a large number of Christians in America think that your good deeds really contribute to helping get you to heaven. Where do you see that? Good people go to heaven when they die. In other words, that moralistic, therapeutic view of God sort of grew up and you begin to see it amongst adults. Here are some startling statistics for you. This is a recent survey of Christians uh, in America. Basically, 73% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. 73% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. But if you ask just a couple more questions, you say, okay, do you go to church at least one time a month? And is your faith important in your life? Well, now that's not necessarily a really high bar, is it? It's not asking, have you devoted your entire life to Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ Lord over every aspect of your life? They just ask this question, do you go to church at least one time a month, and is your faith important in your life? To that answer, those 73% of Christians, 31% said yes to that. 31%. And again, that's not the world's highest bar, is it? So what you see happening in America, as Keller said, is you basically see Christianity splitting. And while 73% of Americans say, yes, I'm Christian, if you just take that bar a little bit higher for does it inform our practice in any way, that number quickly goes down to less than a third of Americans. So the conclusion that I want to draw from that is this. Christ followers are a minority in America. And you let that sink in for a second because that's not the America in which most of us grew up, is it? We're not used to this idea. We don't really know how to operate in this environment. We're really not sure what it means to be a minority in America, but it's dawning on most Christians in America that you will either embrace the sexual and, and secular morality of our culture or you will be labeled marginalized, hate speech, and you will be divided in a sense. And so those Christians who are allowing, I call them Christ followers, in other words, people who are following Jesus Christ, who want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who have a biblical worldview, that group is a minority in America. Well, that's tough for us. As we start to wrap our head around that idea, we, we realize we really don't know how to deal with being minority in America. But here's the problem. We still have the same mission. We still see that Matthew 28, our Lord said to us, he said, I want you to go and make disciples of the whole world. I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. What's he saying? He said, if you love me, obey my commands. He said, I want you to teach people to obey what I have told you. In other words, think the way I think, love the way I love, forgive the way I forgive, have compassion the way I have compassion. Well, here's the rub. He didn't say, I want you to do this in friendly cultures that think that's a good thing. 
He said, no, I want you to do that in every culture. And this is getting to be more and more difficult for us to do, and we are a shrinking minority of people who are pursuing this. But we still have the same mission, and we are a minority. Where are we going to go with this? How do we proceed? Well, one clue comes from a theologian named James K.A. Smith. He made this observation, and he actually had several things that he meant by this observation, but I want to single out one. He said, the future of the church is ancient. The future of the church is ancient. So basically here we sit in America as a, a minority with the mission to engage the culture, now not as the moral majority in this nation, but as a minority in this nation. So how are we going to do it? He said the key to that future for the church and for Christians is an ancient thing, meaning we need to look back. And I want to look back and briefly sketch for you because I want to set up an idea that's going to inform our path forward as the minority church in America. And that idea is simply found in a couple of really key stories in the Bible. Let me take you back first, all the way back to Moses. Think Charlton Heston. Think Yul Brynner. Think 1400 B.C. And you have the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They are a very numerous minority in Egypt, but they're a very oppressed minority in Egypt. You may know this story, but basically the Israelites have become enslaved and they are building the infrastructure of Egypt. They're key to the economy of Egypt, but they're brutally oppressed. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament speaks about this time in history. And it talks about how oppressed they were and how God heard their oppression. They send, he sends Moses to deliver his people. But I want you to think about what happens in this story. I want you to think about what happens in this era of history. The Israelites have no power in their society at all. They're not only a minority, they're not only marginalized, they're literally subjugated people. They are slaves with no power, no weapons, no power, no political power, no representatives in Congress, nothing. And so God goes to them and it turns the world upside down. Imagine Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and here comes this Israelite, Moses, and said, by the way, my God said, let these people go. Well, it should be no surprise to us that Pharaoh's answer was, I will not let your people go. I do not know your God, and I will not let these people go. We wouldn't let those people go for various reasons. Number one, they're important to his economy. Number two, they could be a force if they were freed. And number three, they're slaves. He's the king. They don't, under, they don't seem to understand. This Moses doesn't seem to understand the power dynamic of this society. I'm the king. You're a slave. You get back there and go build pyramids and roads and, and whatever we tell you to do. But as the story unfolds, you begin to see truth confronting power, if you will. Moses comes with the truth of the existence and the reality of God, and he confronts the power of Pharaoh. And that story ends by completely overturning the power structure of that society. The Israelites, if you remember, Red Seas parted, they leave. God's judgment on Egypt virtually destroys it financially humiliates its gods, and the powerless, oppressed Israelites march out of Egypt conquerors, literally conquerors. Second story, 
We fast forward then to the time of Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. Jesus Christ comes into the world as a baby. He's powerless. He's born an Israelite, people who are subjected and under the rule of the Roman Empire, who ruled the world. Again, power. Jesus is literally born into the shadow of the power of the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ comes, he begins to speak truth. There is a God. There is a life beyond this. God has a plan. He can save you, rescue you. He came to redeem you. Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who were lost. I can transcend even death, he claims. He comes with truth and he speaks to power. And when that collision happens, he finds himself beaten and bloody, standing before a representative, Pontius Pilate, of the power of the world, the Roman Empire. Now, that little exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but that little exchange is one of the most powerful conversations in history. It is literally truth speaking to power. And as you read that dialogue, you see Pontius Pilate saying to Jesus, he asks him a couple questions, and Jesus is not really very subservient. I mean, it's a little bit shocking. And Pontius Pilate says, who are you? He said, who do you think you are? Do you not realize who I am? And Jesus said, I am the truth. And whoever listens to the truth follows me. And Pontius Pilate famously replies, he says, what is truth? That is the quintessential difference in that culture and our culture. Power says, I decide what truth is. There is no absolute truth. And God says, I am truth. And you see this collision of truth speaking to power. And so Pontius Pilate responds, not knowing really how to deal with this. He says, do you not understand, notice these words, that I have the power of life or death over you. And what does Jesus respond? He said, actually, you would have no power at all except it was given to you. And Pontius Pilate is just stunned by this. In fact, he turns, he goes back to the Jews, and he says, I'll tell you what, I see no fault in this man. And you know how the story portrays itself and how the way it plays out. And Jesus is handed over as a matter of political, a political expediency by Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Then power thinks it has dominated truth. And then three days later, power finds out, oh no, truth is real in the resurrection and the empty grave. Well, what do I want to tell you about these two stories? Because I think that they are a sign for how we would proceed, the future of the church. Now, I'm not telling you that we are in dire circumstances like the Israelites in, uh, under the Egyptian Pharaoh. And I'm not trying to tell you that living in America is the same by any means as living in first century Palestine under the rule of the Roman Empire. But I am trying to point to those stories and say that we still speak truth to power. Those stories are archetypical of how we might move forward. And here's a really powerful conclusion from those stories. Politics is not the only source of power in a society. Government is not the only source of power in a society. You've actually seen this to be true, not just in religious terms, not just in the history of God's people. You've actually seen this to be true in general. You've seen it true in America 
You think about the civil rights movement, which was led largely by Christians, by Christian ideas. You see that civil rights movement, and you see truth, again, speaking to power, institutionalized racism. How did that play out? It played out that truth overcame. Politics, government, is not the only source of power in a society. That is an important clue for us as we move forward. So I'd like to talk to you about just a few keys for how we might thrive in the situation in which we find ourselves. We are a minority. Christ followers are a minority in our country. But we know that it is true. It has been true with God's help in history. It will be true with God's help again that politics, government, the society is not the only source of power. So how might we proceed then? The first is this. I love this quote by theologian Stanley Hauerwas. He makes this observation, and it's very good for us to remember this. The first task of Christian social ethics, and I'm going to argue even beyond that, that the first task of Christian society, of the church, if you will, is not to make the world better or more just. In other words, I want to reject the idea that the first goal, the first priority of Christian community is not to make the world a better place. Oh, Christians will indeed make the world a better place. Don't misunderstand me. That is not the priority. If it is, we will be very disillusioned, and we are going to have a difficult time in which we do not have a great deal of political power. Instead, he says, Christian people must form their community consistent with their conviction that the story of Christ is true. You see this again, this truth versus power. Trying to change the world is a power move. The first goal of Christian community, Christians, individuals, us here, or the church, is to form the truth of this community, live out the truth of what Jesus said. You see this happen, by the way, uh, in the early church. This is exactly what the early church did. It began with its primary mission, and that was they began to form this community around the truth of the resurrection and the reality of Jesus Christ. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, learned the truth, and to fellowship, coming together, the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders were done by the apostles, and our church will do many wonders in this world, if you will. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. In other words, they're modeling a radically different community. They're going to live like Jesus said to live and model a radically different community. They gave to everyone as they had need, and every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What you begin to see originally with the Christians is living out the truth of what they believed. Living out the truth of what they believed. Did it have social implications? Undoubtedly. In fact, it had powerful social implications. But I think Howard Wash is right in reminding us that the truth is the first thing we hold on to, not necessarily the power. Well, in this series, I'd like to drill down and talk about, well, what are then the specific things that we should do? How do we actually play this out in the world? And I want to take you to a specific book in the New Testament and a specific era of time that has eerie parallels to our own. I want to take you back to the year 68 AD. In the year 68 AD, the Apostle Paul, one of the 
followers, one of the apostles of Jesus, one of the great evangelists who worked throughout the Roman Empire, taking the good news of Christ and literally building these communities. We call them churches. These communities that live out the truth of Jesus Christ, we call churches. And he began to found these communities. Well, he came, as always happens, into conflict with power, with the Roman Empire. And in 68 AD, he found himself in a Roman prison in Rome, awaiting his disposition at the hands of the emperor Nero. So in 67, 68 AD, the apostle Paul wrote a letter. This is the second letter that we have. That's why it's called 2 Timothy or 2 Timothy. He wrote this letter to Timothy and he said this. I, want to, I gave you this whole piece because it's just beautiful. I only want to highlight the first part, but uh, this is a beautiful passage. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, don't be ashamed to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. He's literally sitting in a Roman prison. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, contrary to the moralistic, therapeutic view of God, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, even before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of Jesus Christ. He abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul finds himself in jail for speaking the truth to power, and he writes to Timothy, and he writes in a way that is not at all discouraged, is it? He doesn't say, Timothy, do you know a good lawyer? Timothy, got any money for bail? He says instead, Timothy, this is normal. This is what has always happened, and we will prevail because of the truth of Jesus Christ. He says, so don't be ashamed and don't be afraid, but we're going to confront this. The churches of that time, though, seeing Paul put in prison, the churches were disillusioned. They thought to themselves, oh, no, the power of our culture, our society, the Roman Empire, has turned itself against us. And so they began to be disillusioned. They began to be a little afraid. I think you see a lot of parallels in our circumstances. I think Christ's followers are becoming anxious, becoming a little bit nervous. What will happen? The world has changed beneath our feet. The world that we knew no longer agrees, and we find ourselves a minority. We find ourselves trying to fulfill our great commission that Jesus has given to us. We find it in different ways. We're going to have to use different ways, and so it makes us nervous. It makes people anxious, and the church at that time was that way. In fact, it would get a little worse because before Nero, the mad emperor Nero, killed himself, he had the apostle Paul beheaded for no greater crime than speaking that there was a God other than Caesar. I want to call to mind this idea of the hate speech. Remember, we started this, that even our top leaders began to speak about orthodox, traditional, biblical Christian views as hate speech. In those days, by the way, Christians around the world were considered bad citizens. You're saying, so Christians, bad citizens? Weren't they feeding the hungry? Weren't they helping the poor? Weren't they clothing those who needed it? Weren't they healing the sick? They were doing all of those things, just like you are doing. But they were considered bad citizens for this reason. 
they would not bow down to the gods of the culture. In those days, the gods of the culture were that Caesar was literally Lord. In fact, we read this and go right past it in our New Testament, but every time in the New Testament it says Jesus is Lord, that was an absolutely treasonous thing to say in the Roman Empire. And so Christians were considered bad citizens. You begin to see that trend in our country as well. Christians are not considered to be very useful or good citizens because they will not embrace the pluralistic ideas of our secular ethics. And so you begin to see some parallels there. I think the parallels will become more and more striking as we go along. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now he's telling Timothy, listen, let me tell you, you think this is bad, I'm going to tell you how this is going to play out. He said, I want you to understand this, and in the latter days there'll come times of great difficulty. That certainly can resonate with some people. There come times of difficulty. People around you will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You could just literally paste that onto our modern world. He says they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And he said, you'll need to avoid such people because they are not of the flock of Christ. And so Paul paints a picture of his time. And as we go on, I want to paint a little better picture of that, but I really want you to see the parallels. And as we go into this series, understanding the times in which we live, understanding that we still have a mission, minority or not, and understanding that because of the power of our God, Politics, laws, governments are not the dominant power, despite what it may seem, are not the dominant power in society. They're saying, Terry, that's really tough to listen to. That's tough to swallow. Well, let me go back in history, and I want to remind you of one thing. In this dark time for the church, who did indeed have hostility and persecution right over the next hill, it thrived. The church grew. Christians thrived. Oh, individual Christians suffered. Paul was in in jail. That doesn't mean that everybody's life was great. It's not moralistic therapeutic deism. The greatest goal in life is not to be happy and feel good about oneself. On the other hand, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture. Jesus said, I came to give you the full life, and that's true. What you see happening in the church is the church actually thrives. Truth confronts power and overcame it. The church in a relatively short time, literally just like Pharaoh, just like Jesus before Pontius Pilate and the empty tomb, it played out in history that the church literally overcame the power of the government. No one could believe that. How did they do it? That's the key question. How did they do it? And 2 Timothy has the prescription that Paul gives to the churches for how to overcome. Next, we want to look at the church in Paul's time. It was a persecuted minority, and yet it thrived. And we in this series are going to investigate how did they do it, and then we'll do the same thing. Look forward to seeing you next week.